thank you for your word. We thank you that you know our needs this morning. We thank you that you invite us into your presence. Would you please meet us at the point of our need? You know the things with which we struggle. Uh, encourage us by your truth and help us, we pray, uh, to live in a way that honors you as a result of the things that we think about. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a minute. I lost what I was looking for. Harvard University did a study on rats. And their interest was how long can they swim? So they put them in a tank pushed the button, and watched. Time went one minute, two minutes, and at 15 minutes, the rats were done and began to sink. The scientists in their white coats took them out, took them to a dry place, washed them off, and did whatever was described this way, did whatever it would look like to make a rat feel cared for. And then they put them back in the tank again. How long do you think they lasted this time around? Somebody said, well, longer. Somebody else said, uh, well, maybe two hours. In fact, the rats swam for 60 hours before they began to sink to the bottom. 60 hours, 15 minutes to 60 hours. One person commented on that and said, um, that's because the rats had a sense that somebody was caring for them and would bail them out in their time of need. A commentator who helps uh, athletes achieve their potential said, well, what was going on there is an example of hope. If we know that somebody is caring for us, watching out for us, then we're able to do things that we never thought were previously possible. The passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning is all about hope. Hope when faced with difficult people. Anybody identify with that? And I am in a, I have a problem here. I don't know what to do. Um, you will have to excuse me just for a moment. I came up with my sermon here, and for some reason it has disappeared. Uh, just give me a minute so I can see if I can get it back. If not, I will have to go to my study and get my notes, which I thought I had brought with me right here. But this, this is actually last week's sermon. John, did you? All right, hang on just a minute, would you please? Okay. Look at that. 
Hope's really important for Christians. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the psalmist again and again talked to us about the importance of hope. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So we're going to look at living in hope in the face of relational difficulties, and that comes from the passage that John just read for us, Psalm 8. So if you have a Bible or an electronic device, please turn to that passage, Psalm 8. It's rather short, only eight verses. I'm sorry, Psalm 4, only eight verses. Now here are the subdivisions in the psalm. It starts out with a cry for help, and then a word to antagonists, and then unexpected joy, and then we end up with a word about a path forward. And after we've looked at the psalm in that order, then what we'll do is ask, okay, how can we make this practical for ourselves in the week that's ahead? First, there's a cry for help. Verse 1, you'll see it there. Uh, but before we look at the cry, let me ask you, there are really three players in this psalm. There's, uh, there's the writer, and then there are his antagonists, and then there is God. Let's leave God to the side for the moment and ask this question. With which of those other two does the Lord want you to identify? Uh, is he giving us this psalm so that you can be... Uh, more filled with hope as you move through the day as the writer of the psalm was? Or is this given so that you can uh, perfect your skills at making life more difficult for the people around you? Well, it's obvious. You know, the Lord wants us to identify with the writer and his movement from a cry of help to a way forward. What's the cry of help? Look at uh, verse 1, please. Um, he says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Uh, this is a, a plea that's directed to God, and he calls him God of my righteousness. Why? I think at least two reasons. One is in identifying God as uh, his righteousness. He's saying... Uh, God is the only source for me to have right standing with God. He gives me his righteousness so I can be right before him. But I think there's another way in which to understand the idea, uh, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness, and it's this. God is a righteous God. He's a righteous judge. He cares about people being treated fairly. He cares about justice in our world. Now, this is a call to God who has helped him in the past. Uh, he says, in the past, you helped me in my distress, or you relieved me from my distress. The word distress is actually uh, being in a small place. And the word for relief is being in a big place. You took me from being in a small place where I was all hemmed in, and uh, you moved me to a place where it's more spacious. And then there's some kind of inference in this opening verse, and that is uh, 
since you helped me before, I'm coming to you again, and I'm hoping that you're going to come through me, uh, come through for me once more. Now, I want to pause and ask this question. Is this an appropriate cry to God? Uh, you know, it's in the Bible. We would think it is an appropriate cry to God. But suppose the writer got himself in this mess. Ought he to be coming to the Lord? Maybe he should just tough it out on his own, right? Well, the Bible tells us that in all of our circumstances, pour out your heart to the Lord. He wants us to come to us with all of our needs. And so the writer sees himself as permanently linked to God, his righteousness, and he comes to him out of this sense that he's got this relationship with the Lord. That's also the way that the Lord wants you to view yourself in relationship to him. You're permanently linked. He is your righteousness. So, are you a Christian today? Are you a little Christ? Then you have a sacred duty to view yourself as somebody who has been made new in Christ. You're not your old self. You've been transformed from the inside out, and it's your privilege to see yourself as righteous in God's sight. So, how have you been thinking about yourself recently? On, on what basis might you expect God to do anything for you? when you find yourself in a tight spot. This is the writer's cry for help, and it's our cry as well, and it's our reason for hope. Having begun with this appeal to the Lord, now the writer turns his attention to his antagonists, and you'll see that really in verses 2 through 5. What's the relational rub? Well, look at verse 2. He says, How long will you turn my honor into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? This, this psalm is attributed to David, but we are not told the circumstances of its writing. When was David in a tight spot? Well, maybe when he faced the lion or the bear while taking care of his father's sheep. Maybe when he was face to face with Goliath. We're not told. Maybe when Absalom revolted against him. But David raises this question, how long will you turn my honor into shame? His antagonists are out to get him. Apparently, they're taking something that's honorable in his life. Behavior pattern, character trait, and intentionally casting it as something that is shameful. And in so doing, they're misrepresenting him, they're lying, they're uh, uh, following after what the King James calls vain approach to life. And it's not a once-and-done thing either. You notice the way the verse goes? 
He asks how long, suggesting that this has been going on for a while. There's a string of misrepresentations, apparently. So in verse 3 now, the, the writer gives uh, these people uh, a reminder. He says, know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Do you know how the word set apart is used in other places in the Old Testament? There's one place in Exodus that is really graphic. Uh, when Israel is in the land of Egypt, uh, the Lord sets them apart from the Egyptians in at least three ways. First one is this. He says, there's going to be a plague of flies, but guess what? The flies aren't coming on the Israelites. It's almost as if the Lord put up a big sign on the border between Goshen and Egypt that said, no flies. And they come to a screeching halt. And uh, then another plague was when the, uh, the, the livestock, Egyptian livestock died. But the Lord says that he separates Jewish livestock from Egyptian livestock and not one dies. And then there's one other example also in, in Exodus of this separation. During the plague, dogs would growl. But the Lord makes this promise, I'm going to separate dogs from my people so not one is going to growl at a Jewish person. Amazing, huh? And so the Lord now uses this very same word of separation uh, for us to understand how he views his people. The Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call upon him. What's the word here? Uh, antagonists? Be careful. The Lord has set me apart for himself. That's something you can claim as you follow the Lord Jesus. You're set apart unto God. It's also, it's a word for antagonists. It's a word for all the readers of this psalm. It's a, read, it's a word for us too. And now come three uh, directives for the antagonists. Verse 4, be, be angry and don't sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices, verse 5, and put your trust in the Lord. What a good word. Antagonists, come on. Think about what you're doing when you're maligning others. Get on God's page. Trust in him. You don't have to be, keep on being a pain. You can live in hope, too. So it's possible that there's somebody here today who would say, yeah, I am a pain in the neck to some people. You don't have to be. This is God's word to you. Um, the force of these words right away are, come on, antagonist. Uh, you can do better. Offer right sacrifices to the Lord. Put your trust in him. When I first graduated from seminary, I pastored a, you know, I pastored a rural church. And uh, early on, I was asked to officiate at a, a wedding. 
there was a rehearsal dinner uh, at Fire Hall, and uh, somebody got up and proposed a toast uh, to the long life and the good health of the couple, and everybody took a, ship, uh, a sip of their champagne. Now, I want to say quickly that I have never liked anything alcoholic, and that's true to this day. But what am I to do in that setting? I thought the least I could do was also take a sip of champagne so as not to communicate. I wasn't interested in the long life and good health of the couple. It was not very long, like within the next week, when I was in front of all the elders and deacons together. The issue? The pastor was drinking in public. And one very angry elder came to me and said, I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of this church. Some 30 years later, when we were living in Green Bay, he called and said that he and his wife were going to be passing through, wondered if uh, they could stop and spend the night with us, which they did. And to my utter surprise, he apologized for that event that happened so many years ago. The point of it being, in his time, the Lord can change people. Uh, and so we want to be patient with one another, right? And cut each other a break. There's another takeaway, though, I think, that's here. If someone has spoken wrongly about you, take comfort from the fact that the Lord cares. He's set you apart. He's got your back. You can live in hope and be a blessing even when you're around difficult people. Well, okay, we've looked at this cry for help and we've looked at words of counsel to antagonists. What's next? Look at verses 6 and 7. There the writer talks to us about joy. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up uh, the light of your face upon us. You've put joy in my heart more than when their corn and their new wine abound. Isn't there this universal craving for happiness? One commentator has written this, from shops and sanctuaries, peasants' cots, and princes' castles, from the bush of savages and the bench of senators, from all lands and lips, the cry is heard, who will show us any good? We're children walking in the dark, who will show us the way? We're dying with thirst, who will moisten our fevered lips? We're starving with hunger, who will give us any bread? People the world over feel they do not have what they need, what they want. And the satisfaction for which we've been designed is relationship with the Lord. That's the ultimate connection. As far as we can tell, at this point, the author has not been freed from his suffering. And despite that, he expresses great joy. He compares the joy that he's experiencing to the joy of harvest, and we might ask the question, uh, why does he mention corn and wine or grain and wine? 
And the answer is because back then, those uh, along with oil were considered the highest blessings that a person could possess. Or let's say it another way. Joy is really a byproduct. Um, it's not very helpful to go around navel-gazing and saying, am I joyful? Now am I joyful? Am I joyful yet? Uh, Jesus gets at that idea in John chapter 15. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy comes along the path of walking with the Lord and that's what we see here. Trusting the Lord's guidance, the writer says he experiences lots and lots of joy. And where does that lead him? Well, we've looked at his cry. We've looked at his word to his antagonists. Now there's this unexpected joy, and that brings us now to verse 8. And really, this is the path forward. He says, in peace I'll both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As a result of all that the Lord has promised, the kindnesses that he's already experienced, uh, he says, I can confide in God. Uh, I can experience joy in relation to him that supersedes anything that I can find apart from him. And I can rest in him because he is the one who is watching over me. He's the one in whom I can hope. So what do we do now with the psalm to, to make it practical? This character trait of hope runs through the whole thing. Hope and trust are, are blended together. And where do we see hope and trust most vividly displayed on the pages of Scripture? Where would you look? Wouldn't you look to Jesus? Don't we see those character traits in him to the nth degree? Doesn't he fulfill all of the longings of Scripture? Think about um, him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's entrusting himself to the Lord. And then as he's hanging on the cross, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's trusting that the Father is going to take care of him, that he has reason to hope beyond the physical death that he's facing. And when we elevate this trait, or these traits of trust and hope, when we elevate those, what are we doing? We're showing off the excellencies of Christ, right? So when you hear, be hopeful, running in the background needs to be, be hopeful, you have a Savior who is the Lord of hope. As he gives hope, as he experiences hope in himself, he gives hope to you. 
You can't be like him in your own strength to be sure. And so you need to trust the Holy Spirit who's, you, who you received as a free gift. But the word is live in hope as Christ did and out of the strength that the Holy Spirit provides. And as we obey, what happens? We become more and more like the Lord Jesus. He's at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Our obedience then is to God's glory and he's the one who provides all that he requires of us. So this week, the Lord is calling you to live in conformity to the practices and the principles and the priorities that are laid out here in Psalm 4. And as we strive after those, we can do it with full confidence that he who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So here are three steps that we might take together. And let me just say that as I tell you steps that we take together, I'm, I mean that, together, uh, memorize Psalm 4. It's only eight verses. You can probably do it in an hour and a half. You say to me, why are you so sure about that? I've memorized it. It took me about that long. And uh, it took me about that long driving with my Bible on my steering wheel <laughs> from southeastern Pennsylvania to Wilmington to see a woman who was in the hospital and then back home again. And you say, why, why were you doing that? Well, I'll tell you the reason. I had previously been reading through the Psalms because I was very troubled about a church situation where there were some antagonists. Not my friend Leonard that I was mentioning earlier, other ones. And uh, I thought, I need something on which to meditate. So every time this problem pops into my mind, I want to memorize something. Well, it was Psalm 4. By the time I got down to the psych hospital in Wilmington and then came back home, I had those eight verses nailed. Now, you say, how did you do that and stay on the road? I don't know. That was the Lord's kindness. But the first thing is, memorize the psalm. The second, thing you can do, the second step that we can take together is meditate on this psalm. Go over it and over it. Uh, psalm 119, verse 11 tells us, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. We don't want to be people who live without hope, but we need to have our hope fueled. And one of the ways to do that is as we meditate on the promises of God's word, i.e., in this case, Psalm 4. And then practice the psalm. That's the third step. You say, what does that look like? Well, for starters, when you go to bed at night, you could be rehearsing in your mind Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my voice. You could, re you could also use that as the opportunity to not only rehearse the psalm, but to say, I will commit myself to the Lord for this night. I'm going to give, him, uh, I'm going to give myself to him fully, even though I feel like I'm in a tight spot. And when I say practice the psalm, you see, sanctification is a process. It's little by little. We don't get it all at once. 
we trust and we obey and then we flop around and then we need to trust and obey again and we flop around. This is the Lord guiding us little by little and so practice the psalm. You've probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor, lived during the time of the Second World War. He opposed Hitler and died as a result of it. The Nazis came and they took away his library. Then they took away his pulpit. Then they put him in a concentration camp. And then they set up a trial and charged him with wrongdoing against the Third Reich. As the story goes, he was given an opportunity to respond to his accusers. And he said something like this. It's not a quote, but the gist of it is this. He said to his accusers, you have the power to take my library. You have the power to remove me from my pulpit. You have the power to incarcerate me here and to make me stand naked before you in this trial. But one thing you cannot do, you cannot command my will. And in this moment, I choose to love you. His words expressed both trust and hope. And very shortly after that, he would be ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus. What place does hope have in your life today? Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us. We pray that you would help us to live for you out of the promise that you've given us, that we can lie down and sleep because whatever our circumstance is, you make us dwell in safety. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.